Hello, and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever seen something so awe-inspiring that it made you think, you know, being so tiny and utterly dependent on everything on this planet is actually great. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today I'll be talking with Wendy Harrison about the most massive and possibly most jaw-dropping trees in the world, giant sequoias. I can't wait to share this conversation with you because we get into all kinds of cool things, like the ancient origins of these trees, what kinds of plants and animals live around them and depend on them, something called sequoia blood, how they spread their seeds, what's going on way up high in their branches, their relationship with fire, the heartbreaking story of the mother of the forest, and where they can be found today so you can go experience them for yourself. Really quick before we get to that, I wanted to remind you that this is episode 10 of 12 in season one. So after this one, there are just two episodes left until the season break. During that break, I'll be traveling across the state and recording new interviews for you to hear in season two. I've already got some exciting ones lined up in Los Angeles, which I'm really excited about because I haven't been down there for the podcast yet. I think you're really gonna love those ones. Also, did you know that you can directly support the podcast by becoming a patron? That membership starts at $4 a month and you get all kinds of behind the scenes extras and bonus content. In the next few days, I'm going to be posting a story from my conversation with Wendy about a close encounter she had with a large and usually elusive animal in the forest, as well as more information about other animals that can be found among the giant trees. The $4 on Patreon helps more than you know for someone who creates this podcast completely independently, including research, writing, reaching out and traveling for interviews, recording, editing, and promoting all with basically no budget. And and mostly after the three and four year old naturalists living in my house are asleep. It's a one woman show and I'm so thankful because last month Golden State Naturalist hit 20 patrons and $128. My next goal is to cover the cost of the podcast, which averages out to about $250 a month. If you want to be part of helping me reach that goal and get all of the cool extras I mentioned before, you can find me at www.patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. Also, thank you to everyone who's been sharing this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, social media followers, and hiking buddies. Last month, Golden State Naturalist hit the top 2.5% of podcasts in the world, which I cannot actually comprehend. That's all possible because you're out there telling other people about it and leaving ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That helps the show pop up in the charts where more people can discover it. If you're liking the show, please keep sharing with others and leave a rating or review if you haven't had a chance to do that yet. If you want to see what outdoorsy things I'm getting up to, you can find me on social media at Golden State Naturalist on both Instagram and TikTok. My website is www.goldenstatenaturalist.com. But now let's get to the episode. Wendy spent 30 years working as an interpreter at Calaveras Big Tree State Park, where I met up with her for this interview. And she also lived there for a good chunk of time. Now that she's retired, she runs the California Naturalist Program at the park through the Calaveras Big Trees Association. And while she wasn't speaking on behalf of the state park at the time of our interview, she did write all of the trail guides there during her time with them. At one point during our interview, some hikers walked past us and one of them was reading the trail guide out loud. And I felt like I was secretly sitting there with a celebrity, except if celebrities were also like goddess guardians of the forest. But without further ado, let's get to the giant trees with Wendy Harrison on Golden State Naturalist.
sequoias don't occur in stands of just giant sequoias. They belong to the mixed conifer forest. So at this elevation, you're gonna see white fir, incense cedar, sugar pine, and ponderosa pine. So those are the main things that you would find here. Calaver's Big Trees is just below 5,000 feet in elevation, and I met up with Wendy in the North Grove there back in the end of March. And then behind us are branches of this giant sequoia tree that fell down. So they look like logs because they're quite large, but giant sequoias have really large branches. But yeah, there's some research that's being done now where scientists are examining the tops of the trees Mm. and getting up there because people haven't really studied that environment before Mm -hmm. and they've been discovering new species of insects and other little like mini forests that are growing up there where yeah where you know birds have pooped out a dogwood seed and there's like a dogwood growing up in the top so that's That's pretty cool i looked this up and i couldn't find anything specifically about giant sequoias But I did find an article in Atlas Obscura called Canopy Soil is an Exciting Frontier in Forest Science, all about what's going on that we can't see from the ground way up in the high branches of old growth forests. So listen to this excerpt, which describes the canopy in the Ho Rainforest in Washington state. It's impossible to tell from the ground, but on the branches beneath the trailing moss is a whole lot of dirt. This engulfing mat of organic matter is a soil formed from fallen leaves, airborne particulates, and moisture that accumulates in the nooks and crannies well off the forest floor. Built up over decades or centuries, this canopy soil provides a home for insects, fungi, birds, worms, and epiphytes, which are plants that grow on other plants. And much of this life never touches the ground. It's an aerial ecosystem, a network of life that's only possible in old growth forests. Because these stands of giant sequoias are also old growth forests, it makes sense that the same thing would be happening there. And Wendy has actually been up to the branches in the giant sequoias, so she would know firsthand. But when you're in a stand of a mixed conifer forest and you're seeing sugar pines and incense cedars and all kinds of other conifers, how do you know which one is a giant sequoia? Is the the width of the branches or the diameter of the branches, is that one of the ways you can tell a giant sequoia? It is. What I clue in on most is the color of the bark. Mm-hmm. I mean, the branches are pretty high up there, right? which actually is another feature. It's a fire adaptation. Oh. It would take a very big fire to get into the crown of the tree. It doesn't provide um, its own ladder fuels. Right, right. So the way the trunk kind of tapers at the bottom makes it so that if a tree fell against it, it would roll mm. away from it. Oh my gosh. The bark is very fire resistant, but the color of the bark to me is, is really what stands out when I'm looking, kind of looking mm-hmm. at the whole forest. And especially in different kinds of light, they almost glow. Wow. I bet sunset and sunrise are really beautiful. Yes. Yeah, really nice time to be here. The reason the trees are this color is because of the tannin that's Mm -hmm. in the bark. So tannin is something that we eat, you know, when we drink coffee Mm -hmm. or tea or eat grapes. But it's a kind of an insect repellent, but it also is a fire retardant. Mm. What I really love about the way that Wendy describes and identifies giant sequoias is that you cannot separate their appearance 
from their relationship with fire. On the Save the Redwoods League website, there's a section that says giant sequoia can thrive in a world of frequent fires. The thick bark insulates living tissue from low to moderate severity fires that burned frequently in the past. These fires were started by lightning or by native tribes that used fire as a means of managing and caring for the forest. These fires regularly reduced fuels, the pine needles, fallen branches, and other woody debris on the forest floor, and cleared out some of the smaller trees and brush, making extreme fires less likely. The average giant sequoia is almost as tall as a football field is long and has a base of 20 to 26 feet in diameter. Now, it makes sense to me that as a tree, if your strategy is to get that big, you're gonna need to be able to be resistant to fire because you can't put all that effort in just to get burned down. You don't want to do this quick regeneration cycle if you're a large tree like that. What's really interesting to me, though, is that despite the gigantic size of the giant sequoias, their cones are actually very tiny. And so what are you holding? You picked something up when we oh. stopped here. I picked up the male cones and the female cones mm -hmm. of a giant sequoia. And the male cones are little tiny pollen filled, just little bumps at the ends oh of the needles. And then the the female cone is the one that's about the size of a chicken egg that has the seeds mm. in it. So these are wind pollinated mm -hmm. and they tend to disperse the pollen in the winter. Mm -hmm. And then it takes, two, this is also unusual, it takes two years for a female cone to develop oh. and develop seeds that are viable. And then the seeds can stay in the cone for 20 years if it's still attached to the tree. You heard her correctly. The cones can stay attached to the tree for 20 years and not drop until conditions are right for new trees to begin growing or seeds to begin germinating. Wendy had told me at one point that the tiny little seeds look like a flake of oatmeal. And the reason why they can stay viable in that cone for so long is the same thing that gives the bark its distinctive color and fire resistance. And one of the reasons is this tannic acid. Oh, there's one. There's a seed. It does look like oatmeal. <laughs> <laughs> like a non-smushed oatmeal. Like, a, like Irish oats or something. Right. You know? So that brown stripe in the middle of the oatmeal mm -hmm. is the seed. Okay. And the rest of it are the wings. Oh. In case it's floating that down. That is a tiny, tiny, tiny seed. It's very tiny. Very, very tiny. So one of the things I way I like to describe giant sequoias is as they are the largest weed in the world <laughs> because that's what weeds do. They yeah. make lots and lots and lots of seeds yeah. and they like disturbed areas uh, where they can reach the soil. Yeah. So um, that's why giant sequoias need fire. So there's these little tiny seeds can get down to the, the bare soil. And one of these mature tree can have tens of thousands of cones on it. Wow. Just waiting for that perfect condition for the seeds to be released. And where would you see them? I mean, they're, it's so far away and they're the size of a chicken egg. So would you may <laughs> right. not even see them, but, but would they be kind of toward the end of the branches or are they all along? They're kind of out towards the ends. Okay. I don't know if you brought binoculars. I did. But, yeah. You can fish them out. Yeah. It's, I mean, they're kind of far up there. You know, they're like a hundred feet up. Definitely bring binoculars if you go see giant sequoias. Oh, I think I see some. Oh, they're growing in like a cluster. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then in the cones, when the seeds are in there for 20 years, there's also this tannic liquid in there. Mm -hmm. And if you find a green cone and you cut it open, it kind of drips out. Whoa. 
And so that I would is, never have guessed that. <laughs> no, yeah. So it's the same red or auburn color, and that sequoia is, wine. <laughs> yes, John Muir called it sequoia blood. Oh, mm -hmm. and wine actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and he actually made ink out of it and wrote oh. some of his journals with it. Oh my goodness, mm -hmm. do those hold up? Like, yeah, you can still read that. That's yes. incredible. Yes, but that is what keeps the seeds viable mm -hmm. in the cones for 20 years. Is the botanic liquid. It's a preservative. So, uh-huh. That's cool. Yeah. Some of the John Muir archives are down at UOP in Stockton. Mm -hmm. So I was able to get copies of the journal pages with nice. the made with the sequoia ink, blood ink. Yeah. <laughs> and what color so, is the ink? Is it's it... kind of a brownish red. Wow. Yeah, it kind of dries more brown. Yeah. That's so fascinating. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So that same tannic acid that's on John Muir's journal pages that you can still read also preserves the seeds while they're inside of the cone. But while the seeds can stay viable inside of the cone for 20 years, I found one source explaining how they don't actually stay viable for all that long once they're outside of that cone. It says, in contrast with most coniferous seeds, a large majority of seeds of giant sequoia die from desiccation and solar radiation soon after reaching the forest floor, especially during the summer. In one study, viability of seeds removed from fresh cones and placed on the ground dropped from 45% to zero in 20 days. Seeds collected from the forest floor showed an average viability of 1%. So for the seeds to be able to make it, it's really important that they stay in those cones and then they're released when the conditions are right for them to germinate. Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably curious not just about the giant sequoias, but about the interaction of all of the different life forms in this type of mixed conifer forest. Wendy told me about all kinds of interesting animals that live there, including bears and mountain lions and birds and all kinds of cool creatures. But one of the ones that really stood out has a relationship with the cones that we were just discussing. There's a little squirrel and over there's here. A, so this is a chicory that you're a seeing. Chicory? It's a chicory. Is that not a squirrel? It's a squirrel. Okay. It's a Douglas squirrel. So I know people always think I'm saying chickadee, like yeah. a bird. <laughs> but chicories are one of the animals that are really tied to the giant sequoias. Oh, interesting. And so they make their nests in, in the giant sequoia bark. And they harvest the cones. Uh -huh. A giant sequoia can have thousands and thousands of cones, mm -hmm. but the seeds are really tiny. And so the chicories harvest the cones in the fall and they hide them all over the place. So they have something to eat in the winter. And when they eat the cones, they actually just eat the cone and not the seeds. Really? Yeah. So they eat the cones and they are one of the animals that helps disperse the giant sequoia seeds cool. throughout the forest. And, yeah. and as part of that, because they've broken it open and so then they can spread more easily? Right, yeah. Once they harvest the cone, if they cut a green cone off the tree, the cone dries out and then, so that opens up the cone and the seeds come out and wherever they've hidden the cones all over the place to go look for mm -hmm. later, they've planted some seeds. So yeah, so the chicories will harvest the green cones. Some of them will dry out and open up and release the seeds. They'll eat the cone scales that will also open up the cones so mm -hmm. the seeds will come out. And was that chicory full grown? Yes. It was, was so small. Yes. Like if you compare it to like a gray squirrel that you're used to seeing in Sacramento, right? It's like half the size. Yeah, much cuter. Yeah, they're really cute. <laughs> it was really yeah. cute. And they don't hibernate. So they are active all winter, okay. which is why they're stashing food away. Way to survive yeah. through the winter. Yes. 
If you wanna see what these chicories look like, I'm going to be posting a video I took of them on Instagram in the next couple of days, so check my feed for that. Now, after Wendy and I had explored the North Grove for a while and looked at what we could see in the forest, we found a bench to sit down on for the full interview. In that interview, we get into how the tree's relationship with fire has changed in recent years, how similar and different giant sequoias are from coast redwoods, the full life cycle of the trees, the history of logging, the ancient range of giant sequoias, and the few places in the world where they can still be found. Spoiler alert, they're all in California. So stick around, it'll be a quick break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, before we get to the full interview, I wanted to tell you about an account I've been following for a while on Instagram and give them a quick shout out. Discover California, that's discover underscore California underscore, posts about tons of fun outdoorsy stuff to do in the Bay Area and Northern California. If you like this podcast, you'll enjoy the stuff they post too. I know I'm constantly adding to my list of places to visit based on their posts and videos. So go give them a follow on Instagram. Okay, now on to the full interview. We're just kind of admiring the trees here. And I have so many questions for you. (laughs) (laughs) The first one is just, how did you become interested in nature in general? But then also, like, how about giant sequoias in particular? Well, um, my family did not go camping. We, Mm. We just didn't do any of that kind of stuff. But when I was in fifth grade... We did a lot of field trips, mm. like, like nature field trips. And then our teachers did like an outdoor ed thing in the summer. And I just remember just going, this is awesome. Mm. This is this is what I want to do. And then my family actually had bought a place to stay up here in Arnold, oh. not too far away. And my dad really loved being up here. And we came to the park a mm. lot. We always came to the park when we would come up to visit. So that was probably like when I was in high school, we started coming up here. And we just loved the trees, loved being at the river. So I really got to know the park then. And then when I went to college, I decided I wanted to study environmental studies. And I was pretty sure I didn't want to be a scientist, but I loved the experience I had had at outdoor programs, teaching people and you know sharing nature together and being outside. But anyways, I lived on the coast, so I lived mm-hmm. in the coast redwoods mm-hmm. and really fell in love with the coast redwoods. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, ended up working at an outdoor school on the coast for quite a while. And um, anyways, I through a bunch of twists and turns, ended up here. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I get to work with the big trees, with oh, the giant is, sequoias. So. That is cool. And not only yeah. that, but you wrote... I wrote the trail guides. The for trail the guides. Yeah. So when I was a student, a college student, I wrote a trail guide mm-hmm. for 
one of the UC preserves. And so when I came here, I said, wow, we, we don't have a trail guide for the South Grove. Mm. Can you write one? I was like, I'll try. So yeah, I've written the trail guides for all the trails in the park. And so cool. it's really, the research is really fun. That is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you learn way more than you can even fit into the trail guide. Yes. Yes. By the time you're done, that's very cool. Yes. So if you come to the park and you get a trail guide, <laughs> you're looking at Wendy's work. And you segued perfectly for me when you're talking about the coast redwoods because I was going to ask you about are these trees related to coast redwoods? Are they how mm -hmm. similar or different are they? So they're in the same family. They're mm -hmm. in the cypress family. Oh, okay. And there are kind of other random trees in like Asia and other mm. parts of the world that are also in that family. There's another sequoia, the meta sequoia, that's from China, that is also related to the coast redwoods and the oh. giant sequoias. And they all three kind of share similar characteristics. So these three trees are most commonly known as the redwoods because the proper name is really hard to say. It's sequoioidei, I think. I had to look that up. But anyways, the meta sequoia is also known as the dawn redwood. But get this, it is deciduous. It loses its leaves in the fall. I actually had no idea until five minutes ago that there were conifers that were deciduous. So you learn something new every day. Both of the redwoods that are found in California are evergreens. But what other similarities and differences do they share? There are some differences. So one is the climate mm, that mm -hmm. they live in. So giant sequoias like to be between four and 8,000 feet elevation where you know it snows in the winter, is dry in the summer. The coast redwoods definitely are in the fog belt mm -hmm. and they range from Southern Oregon, I think down to Monterey County. And they're just in that narrow strip right along the coast where wow. they, they actually take water in through their leaves from the fog. Yeah. Do the sequoias do anything like that? It doesn't get foggy here. Yeah. If you go to both places, it feels a lot drier here. Mm -hmm, it you, does, yeah. Um, when I worked on the coast, yeah, it just was a lot moister and damp. and feels yeah. like the forest is dripping. Yes. You know? I don't know <laughs> yes. if it actually is, but it feels like that when you're yeah. in it. Yeah. If you listen to the oak tree episode, you'll remember that this is why my guest, Zara Wiley, said that you really shouldn't plant coast redwoods anywhere except for the coast in California, because especially with the drought conditions that we've been having and climate change, they really just take too much water to survive in drier climates. And then the coast redwoods can... They have smaller cones with less mm. seeds in them, but they can also regenerate from roots, mm -hmm. like the roots in the ground and kind of sprouts that if they stay wet at the base of the tree. Giant sequoias really don't do that. They really just regenerate from seed. Mm -hmm. Their leaves look pretty different. The coast redwoods have more needle-like leaves. Giant sequoias are like little pointy in the field guides. It says all shaped like A-W-L. Mm. So like they're just little pointy mm -hmm. scales almost yeah. along the ends of the branches. So those were the sounds of me politely having no idea what an awl was. But I looked it up and it's a small pointed tool for piercing holes, especially in leather. It's like just a pointy piece of metal with a handle. So imagine the pointy metal piece, except not metal and, and with scales and no handle. And it's green. Um, they look sort of cylindrical. Mm -hmm. Like a really, really, mm -hmm. if a pencil was like super narrow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. With the scales on them. One might even say all shaped. Yeah. That's actually one way you tell the incense cedar 
foliage oh. apart from giant sequoia is giant sequoia is is, is round is mm -hmm. cylindrical and the incense cedar looks like somebody ironed it flat oh okay yeah yeah, yeah. but similar types of of leaves. The giant sequoias are the most massive trees in the world, mm -hmm. and the coast redwoods are the tallest trees in the world. Okay, so we got a friendly yeah. rivalry going on. Yeah. <laughs> and not not related to them, but in California, we also have the oldest trees in the world, oh, which right. are the bristlecone pines. So go California. <laughs> we knew we loved so. you. <laughs> this is why it's a fun place to be a naturalist. Okay, so the oldest tree in the world is believed to be this bristlecone pine known as Methuselah. And Methuselah is 4,853 years old. That tree is still alive and living on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevada mountains in the Inyo National Forest. So that's also in California. But how long do giant sequoias live? Well, according to the National Park Service, the longest lived sequoia that's been confirmed lived to be 3,266 years old, and that was in the Converse Basin Grove of Giant Sequoia National Monument. So giant sequoias are actually the third longest lived tree species in the world after bristlecone pines and then Patagonian cypresses. But I was curious about the whole life cycle of giant sequoias from the very beginning to the very end. But at the beginning, like this time of year, the pollen's blowing around. If a tiny piece of pollen interacts with a little tiny female cone, mm -hmm. the female cone will start to grow. And like I said, it takes about two years for it to, to mature and have viable seeds inside. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and there can be thousands of cones on an individual tree. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of cones within a grove like this. Mm -hmm. And the trees hang on to those cones until the conditions are right for those seeds to grow. Mm -hmm. And so it could be a fire where the, there's a lot of seed release, the cones opening after that. It could be some being stashed away by the chicories. Mm -hmm. But once that seed makes contact with the soil, then if it has the right moisture, the right amount of sun, the right access to soil, then it will start to grow. And so it's not too hot. It's not too cold. It's not, not too wet, not too dry. It has to be just, uh, just right. Like the, right. the baby bear, is that yeah. what it is? The <laughs> right. Goldilocks? Yeah. Yes. Anyways, then, you know, it takes a while for the seedling to start to grow and for a giant sequoia to start producing viable cones of its own takes, I have heard, around 75 years. Wow. And at that point, they're still not really wide, but they try to put a lot of their growth into getting tall so that they can get taller than the other trees here. Uh -huh. And that's why they keep their foliage at the top because uh -huh. they're taller than the other trees, have their photosynthesizing way up there above everything else. And once they get tall and can start doing that, then they start getting wide. Mm -hmm. And one of the questions I always got here is, you know, somebody would point to a tree and ask, well, how old is that tree? How old is that tree? Mm -hmm. But you can't really tell just by looking at it. Mm -hmm. It depends completely on the conditions that it's growing in. So the trees that we're looking at right here could be a thousand years old mm -hmm. or they could be 2000 years old. It's just, wow. and you know, in order to look at the rings, I mean, that you cannot put an increment borer into a tree this big. They, they just, it doesn't work. There's too much pressure pressing oh, on the increment borer. So it works with the bristlecone pines, which are a lot smaller. Right. But these right. guys are too big right. to measure it. Wow. So the one one thing that we do have are fallen giant sequoias. Mm -hmm. 
So there have been studies of the tree rings and fortunately, unfortunately here, we have the big stump. So that was a tree that was cut down a year after this grove was discovered and it was a money-making scheme. Mm-hmm. But what it has allowed us to do is count the rings mm-hmm. of that tree and it was the biggest tree in the grove. They gotta go for the And it was, one. yeah, of course, <laughs> of course. So that tree was 1,244 years old. Wow. And it was the biggest one in the grove. So, But biggest doesn't necessarily mean oldest. Right, uh-huh. right. Maybe it, it was right by that little creek. Maybe it had a great little water source there oh, and a yeah. good thing going. Yeah, and that is one of the things about these trees is they can be 1,200, 1,500 years old and they are still growing. Yeah. Like they're still oh putting gosh. on new rings every year and on that massive tree. That's a lot of wood to be to be producing, you know, 300 feet up into the air and 30 feet in diameter and they're still producing new cones every year Uh and new foliage so they're still actively growing at that old age i imagine they would have to get a lot of nutrients from the soil right like to Mm -hmm. be able to produce that so is there something special about the soil where these trees thrive well at least here at calaveras big trees these trees are within their own watersheds so there has been in the past plenty of water Mm -hmm. they've been kind of protected from high winds because mm-hmm. of the, the sides of the watershed. And yeah, it's, it's rich soil. Mm-hmm. The roots also are not really deep. They're kind of shallow roots that can grow up to 100 feet or more away from the tree. Wow. So, you know, a root system spreading out into the soil could cover an acre. Oh my goodness. Is what I have heard. So and all of them next to each other, there's got to be this incredible interlocking web <laughs> situation right. happening. Then, right. And then there's the mycorrhizae that are associated with the roots. And that makes a huge difference in what they can mm. take up from the soil and mm. in terms of nutrients. So yeah, there's a lot going on under the soil that we can't see that people are really learning about as we speak. So yeah, that root system is very extensive with little fine root tips always growing and Mm -hmm. and bringing more nutrients back. So they're pretty amazing. So much (laughs) happening. Okay, so just to break that down a little bit more, myco means fungi and rhiza means root. So mycorrhiza or the mycorrhizal network is just that interaction that's happening underground between fungi and plants. And so it's actually a symbiotic relationship where the fungus gets nutrients that are produced by photosynthesis and the plant gets minerals and additional water from the fungus. These mycorrhizal networks exist in the mixed conifer forest where giant sequoia are found. And it might even have something to do with their success as the largest tree species on earth, starting from the time when they're teeny tiny baby saplings. But what about the other end of the life cycle of giant sequoias? What causes some of these trees to die eventually? Typically, what causes them to die is falling over. Mm. And you probably notice a lot of them have burn scars mm-hmm. from fires hundreds of years ago. And sometimes those can make them a little more unstable so mm-hmm. that if the ground gets really saturated with water and then there's a high wind, mm-hmm. then they'll become weakened and fall over. Sometimes those areas can be infected with fungus that also mm-hmm. weakens them mm-hmm. around the roots. Up until recently, fire has not killed very many mature mm-hmm. giant sequoias. 
Okay, so I mentioned earlier that the relationship between sequoias and fire has changed. Just to be clear, it's the type of fire that has changed, not the sequoias. I found a page from the National Park Service that begins by saying the importance of fire to giant sequoias cannot be overstated, and then goes on to explain that fire has been part of the life cycle of these trees for time immemorial. And when Europeans came in and started suppressing fire, very few new giant sequoias grew. Why? The page goes on to say, before the arrival of European settlers in the mid-1800s, successful establishment of mature sequoias depended on fires intense enough to kill the tree canopy in small areas, allowing enough light for young sequoias to grow and thrive. Giant sequoias are a pioneer species. They are among the first to take root after a disturbance occurs. Another consequence of the lack of periodic fire is that burnable material or fuel accumulates. When trees and shrubs become more dense and log sticks and fallen leaves or needles build up on the ground, higher severity fire is more likely to occur. And that's exactly what happened in the 2020 and 2021 fires in Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. The same page says that between those two fire seasons, somewhere between 13 and 19% of large giant sequoias in the entire Sierra Nevada population were lost, which is to say all giant sequoias. It's hard to overcome the recent history of fire suppression combined with drought, but thankfully both Sequoia National Park and Calaveras Big Trees State Park have had prescribed burns recently. Hopefully that sets them up to survive what's likely to be another bad fire season here in California. But fire isn't the only thing that kills these trees. Here's Wendy explaining other ways they end up falling over. But yeah, it really has been getting weakened around the roots and yeah, with super saturated soil and high winds or, mm-hmm. or a heavy load of snow will cause them to fall over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Kind of makes you wonder how long they could go if, if everything was just right, you know, yeah. <laughs> that never happened to a tree. So you talked about their range being on the western side of the Sierras. Is that the same as their range was before European contact? Way long time ago, mm-hmm. they were all over, or their ancestors were all over the northern hemisphere. Mm-hmm. But by the time the European immigrants arrived, they were pretty much where they are now. Mm -hmm. In the Southern Sierra, there was a lot of clear cutting of Mm -hmm. certain groves, but yeah, their range has really stayed the same. The North Grove, where we are right now, is almost the north end of the range of giant sequoias. There's only one grove farther north. Oh, where's that one? And it's in Placer County. Oh, what? Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to get to. It's really remote and it's tiny. It's a tiny grove. Are the trees um, this big? And the trees are not this big. So I I have a lot of questions about that yeah, grove. <laughs> I'm curious now. Yeah. Like, is that publicly accessible? It is. Oh, um, I'm go check it out now. So I think of Sacramento, where I live, and Placer County as being very close to each other. But for me to get to this grove of giant sequoias from my house, it would take two hours because a lot of the drive is on a really windy road called Mosquito Ridge Road. It's the same amount of time and a lot less car sickness for me to go to Calaveras Big Trees. So that's the northernmost. And then how far south do they extend? Because I know we've got like Sequoia National Park. Right. To the south of here. So Tulare County. Tulare County. Yeah, is about the southern, the southern extent. Okay, so it's not that big of a range. No, it's not. In fact, there's so many times when I'm driving back up here from being, you know, visiting family or whatever down in the Bay Area, I'll be driving up going, there are no sequoias anywhere else. Then where I'm, you know, I'm just going to this one little spot and that's where they are. There's 
they're just not anywhere else. And when you're here, I mean, it's hard to imagine that because they dominate the landscape right. and they're so big and beautiful. Yeah. So you yeah. talked a little bit about how, you know, the range has stayed the same, but there was a lot of logging within that range. Mm-hmm. How many of them survived the logging industry coming through? Or do we even know? Well, I'm sure it's something I could look up. It's, mm-hmm. it's not something I have at the tip of my tongue. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there were like the Converse Basin is one of the famous ones and they cut just about every single mm. big tree down and they you know built railroads in there and put the big logs on them because I mean they're so massive they they had to design ways to get the trees out mm-hmm. once they I mean cutting them down was a whole nother thing to figure out because they're so big but luckily they figured out that these trees are so old that the wood really wasn't useful oh, interesting. because it it's old and kind of brittle and Mm. they're so massive when they would fall down a lot of times they would just kind of break apart right okay good job trees yeah (laughs) shake them off just shake them off (laughs) okay i have a sad question for you can you tell me about the mother of the forest yes i can so you are referring to a dead standing is that it is that that it right there that yes we can see see it if you lean forward (laughs) well i'm going to back up a little bit with the history Mm -hmm. so the north grove was the first place where europeans really learned about the grove and people started coming here right away Mm -hmm. to see the trees and you know news spread all over the place and so it you know people were just building roads so they could come here and see the trees and that sort of thing so that was in 1852 that it was discovered and it really was related to the gold rush there weren't that many european folks here before then just some random explorers Mm -hmm. some of them later on said oh yeah i saw those trees but i forgot to tell anybody about it (laughs) Um, and they probably did but they were busy trying to survive Mm -hmm. so anyways 1852, Augustus T. Dowd wandered in here, saw the trees, encouraged other people to come up here, and then it became known. One year later, a different group of people, not Dowd didn't have anything to do with this, came and decided they could make money if they removed the bark from the biggest tree in the grove, which mm-hmm. is what is now called the stump, because they removed all the bark to make into a traveling exhibit where Mm -hmm. they could take to big cities and charge people money to see it. Mm -hmm. So that was in 1853. Mm -hmm. And then they cut that tree down after they had taken the bark off. So the next year... So that's that big stump you can go up onto right now, yeah. Yes, and that's right at the beginning of the trail, and that's something pretty much everybody who comes to the park sees. Mm We keep referring to this just as a big stump, but that really doesn't do it justice. You could host a line dance on this thing. And that one ended up not being financially successful Mm. and ended up completely burning up in a fire. And yeah, so that, that never was a success. But the next year, 1854, Another different group of people found, it was a tree people called the mother of the forest Mm -hmm. because apparently it was so beautiful and and big and very methodically removed the bark in eight foot sections Mm -hmm. up to a height of 116 feet. And they were, they had scaffolding around it. They, I think it took them several months Mm -hmm. to do the work. And then they packed it up in boxes and they ended up getting it to New York where it was on display in the in the Crystal Palace mm. for one summer long summer and then they shipped it to London and the bark they would reassemble the bark into the shape of the tree so it was in the Crystal Palace mm. in London until 1866 mm. 
you can actually see a black and white photo of the bark of the mother of the forest tree on display in London if you just Google it. I highly recommend doing that. And then that entire thing burned down Whoa. along with the bark. The, it's the it's almost exhibit. like there's a curse on hurting these trees. Right. <laughs> right. The wood isn't good. The bark is going to burn up in a fire. Just leave just them alone. Leave, yeah. <laughs> the interesting thing is the tree is still standing. Mm-hmm. It's been there since 1854. So it kind of shows you how stable these trees are. The mm-hmm. way they're built still has tannin in the wood. And then there was a big fire that came through that part of the grove in the early 1900s. And so it's completely black now. Mm-hmm. There are some big holes mm-hmm. where branches used to be oh, okay. and still has animals that nest in those big holes and so there's you know there's it's still supporting other kinds of life for several years there was a family of ravens that that would make a nest up in the top hole Uh and raise a family up there and that was really cool you could see all the sticks poking out yeah and the baby you know when the baby ravens got too big the parrots would sit in the next door tree because oh that's funny yeah so it's you know when you're out here in the grove and there's these beautiful magnificent giant sequoias and then you see this mother of the forest which is now a black Mm -hmm. snag still standing there it's yeah it's it's quite sad Mm -hmm. the one thing i will say is we did not this grove did not get logged like the groves in the southern sierra this is considered one of the earliest tourist attractions in -hmm. california continuously used tourist attraction and at the time it was privately owned the trunk of the stump that fell over that was used as a bowling alley Oh and yeah, it, the one that's on that creek, mm-hmm. they the, use that as a bowling alley. Well, they put like built a bowling alley on top oh of my it. Gosh. <laughs> so yeah, it was a very different way of looking at, yes. <laughs> at um, trees and nature, and yeah, mm-hmm. and it, it really was a wilderness. There were grizzly bears. Um, wow. Yeah, so it really was a wilderness, and people really were trying to survive, make money. Some people did really well in the gold rush, and other people found other ways to survive and make money. Wow. At this point, I think I must have hit my limit for hearing about exploitation of these trees, because I just totally changed the subject in a big way. Any interesting invertebrates that come to mind? There is a beetle that lays eggs in the giant sequoia cones Mm. at the tops of the trees. And when the larvae hatch, they start to eat their way out of the cone. Uh And that is also another way that the giant sequoia's cones get these dry spots where they open up and the seeds fall out. Wow! So that's it's the phymatodes beetle. Yeah, so that's that's Can kind of an help interesting. Propagate the trees. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And does that happen way up high? So then those seeds kind of spread out in the in the breeze potentially. Or? Right. Yeah. So they have those little tiny wings, mm-hmm. so they can you know float a little ways on the on the wind away from the tree. Wow. Do you ever come here and see any tracks of of interesting animals? Yeah. Yeah. It's the best time to see tracks is in the winter when there's mm-hmm. snow, and yeah, it's really interesting to see how much activity there is here still in the winter. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's the chicories, the squirrels, you know, running from one tree to the mm-hmm. next. And then, you know, all of a sudden the tracks disappear under the snow. Oh, interesting. Um, coyote tracks, coyotes can be active all winter. And they do kind of like a single file mm-hmm. track. Mm-hmm. They want to use the same track, mm. not make new tracks with all four paws. So they'll reuse some of the same ones just to conserve energy. And wow. sometimes you see bear tracks 
here in the winter. I saw some earlier this winter in the snow. Oh, interesting. So, so the, like before they're hibernating or something? Or I I think there may be some bears that didn't hibernate this winter because oh, it wow. was, I want to say it was in December when I saw that. Wow. So, so late enough to where you would think they would be. Right. Oh, there's so many animals that are here. It's hard to think about yeah. which ones to <laughs> yeah, talk seriously, about. <laughs> seriously. And so interconnected, these yeah. webs of probably starting with those invertebrates or the or even the decomposers. Right. And then also there are creeks and streams here and rivers in the park. And so that also is kind of the lot of invertebrates in the water. Mm. Um, Do those run all year or are they seasonal? So the creeks in... This creek in the North Grove is seasonal. Mm -hmm. The South Grove Creek, sometimes that, that's Big Trees Creek. Sometimes mm -hmm. that will run all year, just depends. Mm -hmm. uh, Beaver Creek and the North Fork of the Stanislaus do run all year. Oh, cool. And yeah, really. Oh, that's awesome. Really Are great. there actually beavers there? Not anymore. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. It's heartbreaking. All right. What do you wish that people knew about these trees? Well, I do wish that people realized how rare and unique and special they are. Mm -hmm. I think I shared with you some people are like, oh yeah, I've been to big trees. But when you really think about these trees, they, mm -hmm. they're so rare in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, and they're just only in these very few groves. And the other thing is they just individually, they are so old, they're ancient. Mm -hmm. But they also, it's like they're time travelers in a way. <laughs> yeah. Because they were so widespread. I mean, they've their predecessors first arrived 200 million years ago. That's wild. So, you know, you can kind of imagine maybe what, what the world was like then. You know, because sure. a lot, actually a lot of the same plants were in that community mm -hmm. uh, with the giant sequoias then. So there was a great quote, and I can't remember who said it. They're ambassadors from another time. Mm -hmm. Would that be considered yes. like, I don't know if I'm using this term correctly, but like a living fossil? <laughs> yes, some people that? have called them that. Uh -huh. Yeah, living fossils. You know, when you go to a lot of the fossil, you know, the prehistoric sites mm -hmm. in the southwest that have fossil trees, right. a lot of those are sequoias oh, or predecessors right. of the sequoias. They're ancestor trees. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. What do you think people can do to help preserve these trees or take care of them, make sure that many generations to come mm -hmm. can can see them. So I think when people come here, they don't realize that when they go home, mm -hmm. the things they do at home can actually help or harm the trees. Mm -hmm. So I, one thing I, I'm hoping is that we can help people see that what we do on a daily basis impacts these trees. Mm -hmm. You know, lowering our carbon footprint however we can mm -hmm. in our own situation is going to help these trees. Something really powerful that I heard said about tackling climate change is yes, do all of the individual things that you can to be a good steward of the resources available to you and to not be wasteful, but also think about how you can be impactful kind of one step beyond yourself. So can you influence your HOA to make certain decisions like planting native plants? And can you make phone calls to your elected representatives things like that, that can amplify your impact. But what about how to take care of the trees in a more immediate sense? You know, when you come visit the trees, just be respectful. I've seen people doing a lot of really 
disrespectful things mm. out in the forest. And so I would just say, when you come see the trees, everybody wants to climb up on the bark and mm. take their picture, but it actually you know, impacts the root system mm. when enough people do that. So visit them with respect and care. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is there are a lot of ways to learn about the trees. Mm -hmm. And if you're visiting them, you can attend programs. Here at Calaveras Big Trees, we have a nonprofit mm -hmm. that supports the educational interpretive programs at the park. And they put on seminars. They invite all kinds of speakers here. They host the California Naturalist Program. Oh. They fund some of the positions from the interpretive staff. So, so going to those kinds of things and also mm -hmm. financially supporting organizations like that are mm -hmm. great ways to help the trees. Save the Redwoods League is a great organization to support and they have a lot of information on their website. And then there's a new coalition which is called the Giant Sequoia Lands Coalition. And they're a group that formed recently because of the people are really so worried about fire now mm -hmm. in the grove. So mm -hmm. this is a group of land managers that's coming together to really try to work together mm -hmm. and, and try to protect the trees. So mm -hmm. they also have a website with a lot of information about some of the current things related to climate that are happening. And then the, one of my favorite organizations is called the Association for Fire Ecology. Mm. And they do a lot of research about fire, particularly in the West, mm. and fund student scholarships and have conferences. And so lots of information on there too. So very timely, so, very important. Yes. It's <laughs> so, on a lot of people's minds right now. Oh. All the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. And it's not just here, obviously. It's all over the place. So Right. Yeah. Right. All right. Last question. Okay. What about these trees or this place? After all these years working here, what about <laughs> it just still takes your breath away? Oh, boy. I mean, it's just being here and being immersed like we talked about forest bathing i guess mm -hmm. that's what you call it just being immersed in the grove and hearing the life realizing these trees are ancient individuals you know thinking about all the things they've experienced in the last thousand to two thousand years just being in this one spot it just puts a lot of things in perspective for me mm -hmm. you know when I'm worried about something or and just the light is so beautiful mm -hmm. it's it's just magnificent you really could find a spot and just watch the light all day uh -huh. <laughs> the trees how the light changes well, Wendy, thank you so much for your time oh, and your expertise and your knowledge. Yeah. This is fantastic. Oh, it's been a pleasure. This is also, I forgot one thing, this is the only California state park that protects giant sequoias. Wow. They're all, all the rest are federal. Oh or, my goodness, or, national parks. Mm -hmm, or... National parks, forest service, um, there's a national monument. There might be a private, privately owned grove still, but I'd have to look at, look that up. Yeah. But, yeah. but this is the only California state park with giant sequoias. Cool. So. Come check it out. Come to your state parks. <laughs> <laughs> there really is something special about walking among these giants. I love what Wendy said about being there, helping to keep things in perspective. While I'm out there, I feel like I can get some distance from whatever problems are currently on my mind. Not only that, but for me, a certain magic seems to permeate the forest, and I can't help but write whimsical children's stories in my head. 
If you haven't had a chance to see giant sequoias yet, look up the grove that's closest to where you live and plan a trip if you can. It's so worth the time and effort to get out there. Something interesting from my week is that I got to go out with a friend and forage some wild elderberries and then make elderberry syrup out of them. You might have seen my video of this on Instagram, but the part I didn't show was then using the syrup to make elderberry whiskey sours for a group of friends. And I just have to say that I recommend every single part of this process, partly because actually going out and collecting food is meditative, partly because you get all kinds of unique, delicious things out of it, and partly because, I don't know, I think it just feels right as a human to collect and prepare wild food and to form a direct connection with where your food comes from and the place around you where you live. Just promise me not to eat raw elderberries if you do this because they're poisonous until they're cooked. Also, be really mindful about only taking a little bit of what you find so that there's still food for wildlife and so that the plant can regenerate itself. Also, if you are out foraging this summer, I would be delighted if you tagged me in a social media post about your finds so I can see what you're out there gathering. Okay, thanks so much for joining me and for sticking around to the very end of the episode. I'll see you next time on Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called I Dunno by Grapes, and you can find the link to that as well as the Creative Commons license in the show notes.